Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The arts can be a powerful way of examining social issues. Later this hour, we'll hear how this year's Atlanta Music Festival will explore the intersection of race and poverty with environmental issues. The virtual events include dance, poetry, visual art, and discussions, as well as concerts of African-American music. Speaking of music, that's actually our first topic. The word spirited has wonderful connotations. Think lively, vivacious, enthusiastic. Spirited Conversations Behind the Scores is a new online series of dialogues about music hosted by Dr. Eric Nelson, professor of music and director of choral studies at Emory University. He also directs the Atlanta Master Chorale. Eric Nelson joins us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Happy New Year to you. And Happy New Year to you. Tell us, please, how you came up with the name Spirited Conversations. I love it. Well, it is a bit of a play on Atlanta Master Chorale's motto, which is where music touches spirit. And we take this uh, rather as our North Star, that in programming music, that whatever the style period, whether fast or slow, or joyful or melancholy, that there's something in each piece that we sing, which touches the spirit of our audience. So when thinking about doing um, this conversation with various people, we wished that it would still have some of that, that it would be not only intellectually stimulating, but be related to the spirit and therefore, as you already implied, uh, spirited. When did you get the idea to create this series? Well, as you know, the pandemic has forced all performing arts organizations to reimagine what sorts of offerings to our audiences that we can bring. And when we were unable to meet together to rehearse, unable to perform together, one of the first things that we did was simply meet together on Zoom to have conversations with each other, to check in with each other, to see how everybody was doing. And then we began inviting some guests to visit with us and have some Q&A and enjoyed that so much that it was a short step to wanting to do that, not internally within the group, but externally to our audience. You are beginning on a stellar note. Jamie Barton is the first to kick off the series, the world-renowned mezzo-soprano, whom we are proud to call Georgia's own. Why did you want to start this series with Jamie? Well, Jamie is just 
the most extraordinary artist, musician, and person. She has a connection to Georgia, as you mentioned, having grown up in Georgia, having gone to school uh, in Rome at Shorter College, where she was a, a voice major. And the connection to Atlanta Master Chorale, at least in part, is that quite a few of the singers in the ensemble were in school at Shorter with Jamie at that same time. And they remain friends. Jamie and our accompanist, Jonathan Easter, who plays piano and organ for us, are, are more than just friends, they're professional colleagues. Uh, you may have caught the Metropolitan Opera gala broadcast where artists sang from all over the world, including Jamie. And Jamie was accompanied on that night by Jonathan Easter, who has accompanied her in a number of recitals and high-profile events since. So there is that personal connection from her to us. And then beyond that, she really does love choir. She sang in choir, as I mentioned, and she will come to our concerts when she's in town and has sung with us in the past and hopefully will again in the future. So I wanted to talk with her not only about her extraordinary life as an artist and maybe get a little inside information about what that is like for her, but also I think the angle and the uniqueness of this conversation is I want to ask her whether her formative years singing in choir and her continued love for choir in any way affects her, whether the techniques that she learned in choir are still useful to her as this renowned international opera star and singer. Oh, that sounds fascinating. And yeah, in addition to global acclaim, she is so grounded, so unpretentious and delightful. But I will be interested to hear her speak about her choral background with you. Will all of these spirited conversations be with Atlanta or Georgia-based singers? Not necessarily. Uh, as it turns out, uh, the next conversation we will have is with uh, Joel Thompson, who is a very important young composer. And he is also has Atlanta connections, lives here, uh, grew up here, and went to Emory University where I teach, which is where I first knew him. But we do intend to have conversations with other composers, including composers that we have commissioned, and other conductors, even publishers who are important to the choral art form in one way or another. Joel Thompson catapulted to fame with his piece, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. Would you give us a bit more background about his compositions, you mentioned that he studied with you and got his master's at Emory. He is a very, very gifted musician. He is a fantastic pianist and singer and conductor. But even when he was an Emory student, he was already composing. He would have called it arranging for an acapella group that he was a part of. And I would often go to those concerts and be and I noticed how very skilled those arrangements were. He's got just a great sense of what works <laughs> and um, a great craft even at that point. And he has gone on to compose a great deal of music and is currently working on a doctorate in composition at Yale. And I think is poised to take his place as one of the important composers of his generation. He composes not only choral music, but instrumental music and opera, uh, and has been commissioned to write uh, some operas and workshop operas by major houses already, even at his young age. Eric, I read that 
you want to have a conversation about choral music and people of diverse backgrounds. What are your thoughts on inclusivity in the choral world? That's a, a broad and deep conversation, which I am looking forward to having with some composers and conductors that are experts on the subject. It is baked into the DNA of the conversation uh, of, of the profession that I have grappled with and thought about really since my college years, if for no other reason than choirs are the keepers of the flame of the traditional spiritual. And so from Hall Johnson and William Dawson, arrangers through Moses Hogan to composers that are working now like Stacy Gibbs and, and Joel Thompson, there has been a, a wonderful, wonderful tradition of choirs singing arrangements of African-American spirituals. Choral music by African-American composers that is not based on spirituals is less well known. And so the conversation is not only who should sing spirituals, but also what can we do to broaden our knowledge of composers who are writing non-spiritual music and to make opportunities for composers to come along to write repertoire. There is such a glorious tradition of choirs singing associated with historically black colleges and universities who think the Fisk Jubilee Singers, the Morehouse and Spelman College Glee Clubs, Morgan State University. Yet I hear you saying that bringing this into the 21st century is going beyond perhaps the black church choir. Is that correct? Certainly. I think that, again, part of the profession is performing music that is not necessarily from your own tradition, right? I've, I've performed the Rachmaninoff Vespers. I'm not Russian, nor Orthodox. And I don't mean to be simplistic, but it is one of the joys of the profession of, of doing music from uh, other places in the world, in other languages, from other cultures and traditions. So in that sense, wanting to broaden the repertoire is perfectly understandable and no different. But in the current time we find ourselves in, the, the nature of African-American composers seems more urgent. One wonders why we don't know more music written by African-American composers, and that's part of the conversation, is the why of that. Because you're right, the spiritual, but soon I will be done with the troubles of the world, and sometimes I feel like mother's child, that tradition is very well known. I hear what you're saying. It, it's really a matter of representation now and greater inclusivity of BIPOC composers. Yes. As a conductor, I'm thinking about the other traditions that I don't hear represented. Um, you know, what choral music have you heard from the Middle East, for instance? And there may be reasons for that. It's more of a cantorial tradition. But we're already, Lois, we're already wandering into why I think some spirited conversations on these issues would be uh, valuable for the audience and for the profession. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm talking with Eric Nelson. He's a music professor and director of choral studies at Emory University, also artistic director of the Atlanta Master Chorale. We're talking about a new series he's hosting online called Spirited Conversations. After these live virtual discussions, can viewers ask their own questions? Yes, the, the plan is, 
the, the one that we are doing, uh, this first one uh, with Jamie Barton, will be our uh, maiden voyage. And so I hope that the listeners will be gentle <laughs> and forgiving of us if we have any technical issues. But the plan is that they will be able to eavesdrop and listen to our conversation and also then type in in the Q&A part of the app their questions that they have. And as time allows, we hope to be able to address those questions directly. By giving listeners and insiders look into those who have achieved stardom or prominence in choral music. How do you think these conversations might spark inspiration for a new generation, Eric? It is a constant source of, of delight and wonder to me how generation after generation, people continue to fall in love with choral music. It is an art form unlike any other. It's one of the other things that I'm interested to talk with Jamie Barton about in that the, the vocal technique that leads to the highest level of solo work that has taken her around the world is slightly different than, or maybe more than slightly different to the highest level of choral technique used by professional choristers around the world. But there are also youngsters who come up that hear pop music and they think that someday they want to be Taylor Swift or they, they are enamored by uh, becoming a soloist, which is great and as it should be. But there are also people, and I think I'm, I was one of them, who fall in love with what happens when singers sing together. There is something amazing when 50 singers sing together and become one voice and create one chord and one piece of music. It's a, a, a bit of a, almost a, an example of how the world can be. There are multiple parts. They, not everybody's doing exactly the same thing, but yet we work together. And even during the pandemic, I had at Emory University uh, a, a large number of freshmen who auditioned to be in the choir, even though we can't really sing together right now, that they still want to be a part of it. So I think these conversations will remind them perhaps that, 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 that choirs exist um, not only in school, but that adults uh, are still finding singing together very, very valuable, whether that's in a church, in a choir loft, or on a stage like the Short Center. And then that there are other ways, you know, composers um, and conductors that also are, are part of the profession and of the art form. So a chorus is a metaphor for unity and peace. It's aspirational. Thank you for putting that so beautifully, Eric, and thank you for speaking with us. It is a delight to be with you, and I am so privileged to be the director of groups who get together for the sole purpose of creating beauty and singing in tune, and I'm glad to add this spirited conversation to give a little bit of, of insight into that process, into those who do it. Dr. Eric Nelson, Director of Choral Studies at Emory University and Artistic Director of the Atlanta Master Chorale. He will host the live virtual discussion, Spirited Conversations Behind the Scores, at noon today with Jamie Barton. You can register to hear the conversation by visiting atlantamastercorral.org. You're listening to City Lights.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Change can be an unsettling thing. And if 2020 taught us anything, it's been how to adapt to our ever-changing surroundings. Learning to cope with change is at the heart of Shermaine Perry Knight's new book, I Move a Lot, and That's Okay. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the author in December and first asked how closely this book related to her own childhood. It's spot on. I grew up in the military. I was born at one station. A couple of weeks later, we shipped out to another one. <laughs> Several weeks after that, we moved overseas. So um, I moved every year or two or three years growing up in the military. And I said, I really want to talk about our experience because I don't see us represented in books as much. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't think of a military children's book, you know, especially one that moved around a lot and everything and the ins and outs of that. I noticed in the book that Grace has biracial parents. Was this similar to your own childhood? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's all. I really liked that aspect, too, because I feel that you don't see that much in children's books either. So I thought about that as well, because growing up in the military, you have a lot of families that are bicultural, biracial, and everyone celebrates that diversity. I learned a lot from my Filipino friends and my Hispanic friends and my friends of different backgrounds. My, fam my family's from Trinidad and Tobago. So my mom's side is black and white and Indian and my dad is African-American from here in the US. Two different cultures, several different races within one family and you learn a lot and you just explore. And so I saw that as a theme around other military families. I said, you need to see more mixture among families and books. I don't see that enough in children's books. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you celebrated that and you brought that to the forefront, you know, in Thank the you. illustrations. Did you create the illustrations yourself? No, I hired an illustrator. I talked, I said, let me explain everything that's in my mind to you <laughs> and then let's go from there. <laughs> but a lot of the illustrations, a lot of the illustrations are based off of photos that I have of when we moved and the cartouche on Grace's chest, that, that element on her necklace. You know, all of those things are actually representative of my own life. Oh, cool. So like the purple dinosaur, did you have one when you were a child? I did. His name is Cody. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. I didn't realize that. I did lose him on a plane. <laughs> <It was laughs> oh, you did lose him on a plane as well? I did. It was heartbreaking. Oh, man. <laughs> so... Can you start by giving our listeners a brief synopsis of I Moved a Lot and That's Okay? Yes, I Moved a Lot and That's Okay represents a military child's experience in a biracial, bicultural family. And Grace is a young girl who moves a lot because of her dad's job in the military. She loves new adventures, but every time you have to leave everything and everyone behind, it creates new challenges for you. So this student, like myself, because this represents when we moved from Georgia to Italy, you are leaving everyone behind. You're learning a new culture, a new language, trying new food, and really trying to adjust to a new environment, but you don't wanna forget the people you left behind. And so this is a dangerous balance between the hope you feel, and sometimes you feel hopeless in the middle of the move. And so people say freedom isn't free, but I would say also for the military brat, because we don't typically talk about the ins and outs of their emotional awareness. And in the beginning of the book, you write, you just said military brat, but you write that Grace, the main character, she doesn't want to be called a military brat. Was that something that you encountered as a child as well? Yes, because as a child, nobody wants to hear brat. You, you have a negative connotation, but they call you brat. They like to call you military brat. And as you um, 
look at the definition behind the term, they talk about your resilience and your ability to have that mental toughness and grow and make the best of any environment. And that's why they refer to you as a brat. As an adult, I like the term. As a child, I'd say, don't call me that. You can call me Little Perry, because that's my maiden name. Or you can call me Charmaine, but don't call me that. And so I hear a lot of children saying that. I don't want to be called Brad. Why do you like the term now as an adult? As an adult, I think it, it ties you to a community that now that I'm in the civilian world, it's a little bit different. But, you know, when you grow up in the military, you're around this tight-knit group of individuals of a diverse background, and everyone holds on to each other because we're all growing together, you know, their family is your family. You're learning a lot about their customs, their culture. It's a tight knit group. Even though you're moving, you're losing people, you're gaining new family. It's very different. It reminds you of an old school, old world environment, but now it's different as you grow up. So you want to hold on to some things that remind you of the memory of being a part of the military community. I think the term Brad is one of those. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not a part of the military community now. What inspired you to write the book? at this point in your life? So I've always been an avid reader and a writer. And when COVID-19 hit, you know, that time in which I would be driving back and forth to the office or riding public transit, I said, I want to make this time meaningful. I want to write and not just write anything. I want to talk about some of my own stories. And so this is where I started to just write about some of my childhood memories. The first time I tried Italian ice cream, the first time I tried Italian pizza, the first phrase I learned in Italian, right? And when we moved to Turkey, I'm writing stories about that as well as that experience. Because I, I just, I said, you know, I don't have children yet, but I said, I want to read a lot of kids' books. And I just started doing some research. And I said, I don't see us represented well, but I know the stories firsthand and the experiences. Let me share that with the world. Why did you decide to make the main character's name Grace instead of Shermaine, even though it's closely related to your own childhood? Grace is a name I've always loved. And then when I think of Grace, not just a name, I think of what it represents, having some feeling for someone else, having a little bit of empathy, you know, trying to connect with them in a different way. They say, you have a little grace for this person. And I said, I, I like that name. I want to use it because it represents more than just the person. Mm. Throughout the book, Grace talks about things she enjoys and doesn't enjoy about moving, but she always ends with a saying, and that's okay. Why did you want to end most of the pages with this affirmation? You're taught resilience as a military brat or military child. And you're taught make the best out of every day, every new situation, everything you encounter. And so I'd always find myself saying, you know what? I'm okay with that. Or I'm not okay, but I'm gonna make the best of this. And I said, if you start to build a theme around this, young children can really adapt that. You know what? I don't like the way I feel right now, but that's okay. I can grow past this. And so with every move, there's a period of time that it's very difficult for any, any individual, but then you start to feel like everything is okay. You start to embrace the new areas, the new people, the new culture. And so I said, let me keep that theme up of it's not okay or it is okay. And that she would ultimately at the end realize that hope and resilience are universal and that this will help her to overcome that circumstance. As I was reading the book, I felt it was very relatable for me. I don't come from a military background. My family doesn't. But we moved around a lot as a child, not necessarily across the country, but like around North Georgia and North Carolina. And my sister and I were in several different school districts. And we had to constantly learn how to make new friends and adapt to new circumstances. And now years later, since I've been with my husband, we've moved several times around Atlanta, like seven times in the last eight years we've been together. Do you think people who move a lot as a child are more receptive to doing this in their adult life? Yes. There are certain thoughts and feelings, experiences related to rapid change and relocation. For me, I'm always open to a new adventure. That's how we framed it many years ago. It's a new adventure. And you, you're mentally preparing yourself for what is to come because those thoughts, those feelings, that experience that you, you even felt, those are familiar. So those experiences are a little distant, but it's still familiar. So you say, you know what? I can relocate again because this is not scary. I understand what will come with that. And I know that something better is on the opposite side. And like I said before, even though my family didn't come from a military background, and other families who might read this book 
might not have that same experience, but how do you feel that this book can still be relatable to children in other circumstances? Great question. I feel it is it is relatable because if you think about it, every life change that we're going through, and especially the nuance or the global pandemic of COVID-19, we all have our own thoughts and feelings and experiences, right? We're supporting others, we're forming friendships and across cultures and boundaries and trying to make the best out of every single day as adults. Children's experiences are valuable as well. And so I said, this is a great book to just represent that rapid change and and so much is happening around us, but you need to stop and realize there are moments and great challenges. You say, you know what, this is relevant to talk about. So I, I try to intentionally create each page around a conversation where you can stop and say, hey, I didn't grow up in the military, but I recognize this so many boxes and it's having to move again. Let's talk about that. Let's find a moment to celebrate within that, write their names on the boxes. You know, th there's an opportunity within each page to discuss this and say, you know what, this is happening. Let's talk about those moments. And I feel as though having those family conversations are really important, even as adults. I've moved twice in the last year. You know, same experiences, same feelings, same thoughts, but it's different than what a child is not always able to articulate out loud. Yeah, this book can be both a valuable resource to children as well as an adults, especially during this uncertain time of COVID and a lot of change that has happened in this year. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard from a few teachers that are saying they're using this as a resource in their English language arts class to learn new terms in the military. So when month of the military child, I think that's March, and in November for Veterans Day, they want to highlight some of those areas. They want to talk about, you know, mental health. They want to talk about self-care, and they want to use this. And I said, that's wonderful. You, you got all of that from this book. And I was just trying to share some of my heart and what's always been in my mind with others but they saw a theme that was even beyond what I imagined. Speaking of military terms, I loved that you referenced several acronyms and abbreviations in the book, such as PCS, Permanent Change of Station, and TLF, Temporary Lodging Facility. Why did you feel it was important to include those terms? These are terms that um, most military members are familiar with, but it's hard to explain such a large concept to kids, like military orders. You can say anything you want, but all they heard is that the big boss said this time for us to move and we can't say no. <laughs> so I tried to make it digestible. And so I'm also a learning and development professional. And part of what I do in the daytime is I take a difficult concept and make it digestible for any age group. And I said, that's what you should do. When you're talking about you know, an acronym or military terminology, whatever it is, you need to explain it in such a way that anyone can understand. So I said, let's make it relevant so that someone within the military and a child can understand or someone on the outside. Because if nothing else, 2020 has taught me that we have to build bridges across boundaries and we need to learn more from each other, celebrate the differences, really look how we're represented and say, you know what, there's something similar about us. Let's learn more about each other. That's wonderful. How could this book have been a valuable resource for you growing up, moving around as much as you did? Wow, um, there there were no books, at least at least at the time that I grew up, there were no books that talked about the military kid experience. There were no books talking from a child's perspective on diverse celebrating diversity and you know how representation matters. There were no books talking about resilience. You had conversations at home and you had conversations among those that you knew. This would have been a valuable resource for me. City Lights producer Summer Evans talking with author Shermaine Perry Knights. Her new children's book is I Move a Lot and That's Okay. The Atlanta Music Festival is an annual series of events dedicated to promoting the arts and social justice through the presentation of African-American concert music and poetry. The 2021 festival, AMF, addresses the importance of the environment to social justice and equality through the arts. Dr. Dwight Andrews is artistic director. Dr. Stephen Darcy is music director. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much. So good to be with you. 
wonderful to have you here. For those who may not be familiar, would you tell us how and why the Atlanta Music Festival was founded in 1910? Well, I can certainly try to give an overview. The first African-American pastor of First Congregational Church, where I now currently serve as pastor, right after the race riots, he was very, very much a part of the church leaders and civic leaders that were trying to reconcile Atlanta, which had been so ravaged by the race riots of 1906. And out of those efforts, he thought it might be a good idea to make for an opportunity for the races, black and white, to come together around music as a way to not only learn about one another, but also to share the power of music. And so they created the Atlanta Music Festival in 1910 as a way to literally bring people together. And I think equally important, Lois, to bring people to the idea that African-Americans celebrate many, many different musical expressions. And so that's why the idea of concert music by African-Americans was so central to that very first festival. Mm. And it went on for eight years, correct? That's my understanding. Would you tell us about the Atlanta Music Festival's revival in 2001? Well, I can make a stab at it, and then Steve can correct everything that I say. <laughs> so Steve Darcy and I have been longtime friends and colleagues that we go all the way back to graduate school together. And then we discovered that we were both in Atlanta, and we started to work informally with Meridian Herald, and we started doing concerts and joint programming. And then as we thought about our presentations, we decided that many of the goals of the Atlanta Music Festival, we were already doing in a kind of 20th century context. And so it was just a natural fit to, to literally reinitiate the Atlanta Music Festival because it, we were already moving in that direction. So we started to program uh, around issues of folk songs and concert music traditions. And I think most excitedly, we, we discovered that we share a lot more musical heritage than we sometimes think about in terms of black and white. So Steve, can you fulfill that description a little bit more? Dwight's correct. We first met at graduate school and then uh, I came to Atlanta first, and then uh, he came uh, a couple of years later, and we had started Meridian Herald. Meridian Herald is a nonprofit organization supporting a professional choir and presenting uh, concerts and events uh, through the years. So when Dwight came to Atlanta, a couple of us took him to lunch and invited him to uh, join our advisory board. He, he said, I'll be glad to do it, provided we actually do something. And uh, and so he said he wanted to do an annual uh, concert together. So we we began doing that, and then Dwight discovered this uh, the Atlanta Music Festival tradition that his church had begun in 1910. And our executive director, Meridian Harold's executive director, Jane Thorpe, is saying now that First Church has been working toward race relations through the arts uh, for over 100 years through the Atlanta Music Festival. So we're certainly honored to be a part of that and so grateful that Dwight agreed to lead it for us. And of course, Dwight, you continue this as well through your music ministry. Music has pride of place within sacred and secular context at First Church. That's right. That's right. I think part of my uh, part of my mission in life is to really uh, reframe the way in which we think about music and some of the secular and sacred divisions that we think about really don't contain, I think, the aesthetics and the creative expression of African-Americans. So when we think about jazz as being a distinctly secular music, I think that unfortunately that cuts off its spiritual aspects. So we've been working diligently on many different fronts to kind of reclaim all of these musics for their spiritual capacity and for the, their capacity to bring healing to our communities. And so that's a part of the goal. 
well, I think you have already achieved much in the way toward that goal. Um, it has been just enlightening in past conversations with you to hear about reclaiming blues and jazz and what a beautiful way to frame that. Proctor Creek was chosen as the focus of this year's festival. Would you talk about its complex history with segregation and race? Unfortunately, many of us, including me, didn't know that much about the West Side. And uh, Sally Sears, a TV journalist here, took a, a couple of us on a tour of the West Side over a year ago, and we learned about Proctor Creek, and we learned about the some of the important neighborhoods there and the wonderful histories, and of course the troubled histories as well. Proctor Creek interested us probably because we we thought it must have been named for the pastor of First Congregational Church who started the music festival. However, it was it was named for a Native American, but. Nevertheless, we got interested in Proctor Creek and, and, and learned uh, something of our history. Our festival this year has launched uh, a video series being produced by Hal Jacobs Creative, a great videographer, a wonderful person. And so we're going to have several, several videos each day beginning on January the 25th. The first one's going to be the GLOW Dance Initiative here in Atlanta by Laurie Stallings. They produced a dance in the creek. It's going to be wonderful to behold. And then uh, Tuesday, we're going to have uh, Reverend Skip Mason of Westside Mitchell Baptist Church talk about the neighborhoods around the creek. And William Bryan, an environmentalist, will do the same thing. And on Wednesday, the 27th, we had a big event on Proctor Creek, which included Jensi Kong of the Vegas String Quartet playing by the Creek Bach. And we had students from uh, Booker T. Washington High School, uh, which the creek flows near, and Emily Hearn, a plein air painter, and the students actually painted by the creek. So we're exploring how the arts and environmental justice can interface. The creek has had some terrible times with the dumping of sewage and other problems and not being treated as it should be. And it's being addressed, it's being fixed, and there's a wonderful sections uh, like the Path Foundation has made a beautiful section, and that's where we've had our events there. And if I could add uh, just uh, uh, one thought, we oftentimes think about social justice in, in many ways in a way much too small, uh, because the ways in which uh, environmental justice is as important a part of social justice as uh, police violence or other things that we oftentimes think of, for example, like the Black Lives Matter. But the fact is that many poor people and people of color oftentimes live in toxic neighborhoods. That's a part of our American cultural history. And we sometimes overlook how important a healthy environment is to a healthy community. And so I'm really pleased and excited that in this year's festival, we can talk about the connections between activism and advocacy and art. And we can bring together community members and young folks and old folks and artists, all to engage in the same idea of how do we create a healthy ecosystem for our entire community. And I think it's a really innovative way, frankly, of using music as a part of that racial uh, reconciliation. So that's what is really exciting me. I, I do think it is exciting, Dwight. And I think about the tragedy in Flint, Michigan, the aftermath of Katrina in Louisiana, and toxicity in the water in the environment still in those places. And I'm intrigued that you have brought in our reporter. WABE's Molly Samuel is our environmental reporter, and she's done extensive research on Proctor Creek over the years. She and the Reverend Thee Smith 
will be reading several poems. What do the poems address about human interaction with nature? We've got eight African-American poets represented in this program, and I have studied several anthologies and, and chose poems that I thought would contribute to it, to what we're trying to achieve here. And of course, when you're dealing with artistic creations like this, you never know what you're going to find, and you, you never know what's going to, uh, how it's going to shape itself. So I, I would say that the poems have shape the uh, structure of the program in this respect. This is the confluence. Is that the series? Yes, it is. That's a good word for it. Well, Sterling Brown, I know that Dwight knows some of these uh, poets, and he's an important African-American poet, and he wrote a poem called The Children of the Mississippi, and it's, it's long, masterfully written, and happens to be read by Thee Smith, who's a, also a, a wonderful theologian and scholar and a wonderful reader. And it, it talks about a horrible flood of the Mississippi River. Proctor Creek may not be a Mississippi River, but it's had some horrible floods. So when Thee reads that uh, and people see it on the video, I hope they will see connections to that great Mississippi River. And the tragedy that it was a great tragedy uh, when the when Proctor Creek flooded and caused illness and and some deaths. So that's one example of it. And Natasha Trethaway, a wonderful contemporary poet, she wrote a poem called Flounder. You know, I'm I'm smart enough to know that has something to do with water. But it's it's a beautiful dialogue uh, between a young girl and, uh, and, and, and her aunt. They're, stand, they're sitting in a creek fishing for flounder. And she talks about the flounders white on one side and black on the other. And it flips back and forth all the way. And, and I put it in because uh, it's a beautiful poem and it deals with water. Another important component of this is that Morris Robinson is going to sing. Morris Robinson. Oh, one of, yes. One of the great uh, opera stars in the world now, and in Atlanta, where he's, he lives in Atlanta now. A great guy. He is a marvelous singer and a very lovely person. How lucky we are to have these internationally renowned opera singers living in Atlanta. We are indeed. Dwight, you will interview the wonderful visual artist, Radcliffe Bailey, on January 28th. What does his work address, particularly in regard to ancestry and Black heritage in the South? Well, you know, Radcliffe is a real treasure for us in the Atlanta community. Uh, he's a brilliant artist. And he's elected not to leave Atlanta, but to set up shop right here in Atlanta for his whole career, even though he's an internationally renowned artist. And one of the things I find quite fascinating about him is the importance of history, or as he says, the importance of the land to his work and to, to his overall expression. And we did a wonderful interview in his studio, and I hope people will tune in to see that. But it really showcases the way in which themes like water and the sky and the land and the railroad and the ideas about movement and migration, all of these big themes of African-American experience are endemic to his work. And it's fascinating the way in which he pulls all of those, those elements together in his uh, quite singular expression. And when we talk about his work, he related his own family story and history and the fact that his, his studio is adjacent to one of the nature conservancies here in Atlanta by design. He wanted to be in nature. And, and so he, he connected all of those dots for us that I sometimes think we don't think about artists and their relationship to their own history. But he really brings all of that home in a very, very kind of wonderful and creative way in our interview. And he's a great artist. He is. I read that Elaine Martone, the 
producer of the Atlanta Music Festival CD, Bound for the Promised Land, has been honored with a Grammy nomination for this year's Classical Music Producer of the Year. And that album featured the late marvelous opera singer Jesse Norman. Dwight, can you talk about the arrangements on that recording? Well, as you know, uh, when Jesse Norman came and sang, and we also had readings by Taylor Branch and others in that wonderful 2016 festival, uh, a lot of that music included uh, arrangements of the spirituals, a part of the African-American concert tradition. And that concert also featured a commission with Adolphus Hailstorf, one of our great senior African-American composers. Oh, my new puppy is... is so bear with me. He's no. not a singer either. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, that that concert really reflected that whole world of African American concert music that spans a century. And Jesse Norman, as as you well know, can take anything and just turn it into an unforgettable uh, moment, as she did when she came and sang. I think that was one of her last public performances. But we were very, very fortunate to be a part of that uh, her le- concert legacy here in Atlanta. The Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews is artistic director, and Dr. Stephen Darcy is the music director of the Atlanta Music Festival. The online events begin today and continue through the 30th. More information will appear on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the new PBS series, American Portrait. The project includes a public mural initiative And we'll hear about the Atlanta mural from the artist John Key. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Shelley Knevey is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.